God's word in 2 Kings 4 says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant fear the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls, and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and he and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. <coughs> One day he came there, and he turned to the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, a servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is there to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season... About this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived. And she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, a servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone. For she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment, and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. 
When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Let's pray. O Lord, may we hear you, the good shepherd, and may we come as sheep, hearing your voice, knowing that you care for us. And that you sent your son to lay down his life for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Ruth Graham writes, It's not your imagination. Life is good for beautiful people. A drumbeat of research over the past decades has found that attractive people earn more than their average looking peers, are more likely to be given loans by banks, and are less likely to be convicted by a jury. Voters prefer better looking candidates. Students prefer better-looking professors, while teachers prefer better-looking students. She goes on to cite Daniel Hammermash's book, Beauty Pays, that traced the concrete benefits of attractiveness, including a 230,000 lifetime earnings advantage over the unattractive. To some, that may be surprising, and to others, you go, well, it's just the facts of life. Yes, we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, and it's on the inside that what matters, but... If we're honest, we often rate people and things by the exterior. We also know it's not just external physical appearance that leads us to treat people differently. So in our nation, we've come up with a whole list of anti-discrimination laws that we require that we don't hire people based on religion, race, or any such thing. But all of this begs the question, we know humans treat people differently by their exterior does God treat people differently? Well, our society immediately says no. God loves and treats everyone the same. And yet, consider these verses. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thus, God does not treat the proud and the humble alike. Isaiah 59, verse 2 declares, Behold, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not here. So God does not treat those in act of sin in the same way he does those who are pursuing righteousness. Jesus tells us on the day of judgment in Matthew 25, 32, before the son of man will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Thus for all eternity, God will treat people differently. However, while humans treat each other differently based on externals, God treats us differently based on our character and our commitment of faith to Him. Humans look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God is not primarily concerned about our wealth or our abilities or our talents. Rather, He's concerned about how do we use those? How do we respond to others? Do we seek Him? And this morning we read of two different women, and from them we see that God cares. God cares for the poor. God cares for the rich. God cares for those who trust Him. 
First, in the first seven verses, we see God's care for the poor. Now, if you've been with us as we've gone through Kings, you'll know last week we went and read a story of a war against Moab. But now the story turns to tell of a prophet dying, one who feared the Lord. And his death was tragic in and of itself, but it also left a widow with two children, and she was not able to pay off their debts. And because of this, the owner of the debts was going to sell her sons into slavery. Unlike modern Western government, there was no child tax credits. There is no welfare program, Lone Star cards, or any other government programs. God did provide care for them through the Mosaic Law. And thus they weren't to glean everything all the way to the edge of their fields. They were to leave some for the poor. In the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 50 years, all debts were to be canceled and all land returned to families and clans in each tribe. And they weren't supposed to make loans that were predatory to other Israelites. And so, was this creditor being harsh and unloving? Well, perhaps. But we don't have all the details, so we shouldn't really speculate. But in the widow's deep grief, at burying her husband, and this anxiety of possibly losing her sons to enslavement, she turns to the Lord. And I found a very interesting notice what she says. Verse 1, your servant is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. There's kind of an implication that because he feared the Lord, he should be blessed. Well, isn't that the false health and wealth gospel? That says, look, well, if you serve the Lord, he's going to bless you. Well, while we should be concerned about the false health and wealth gospel, we should not deny God's promises to care for those who seek and honor him. Psalm 34, 8-10 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you who saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And so the woman's saying, look, it just says right there, those who fear the Lord have no lack. And we're lacking. What's going on, O Lord? Even Jesus said, Matthew 6, 31 through 33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we wear? Or what shall we drink? Or for the Gentiles, he says, Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God does provide for our needs. The problem is, the health and wealth gospel expects not just God providing for our needs, but demands that he gives us prosperity. As well, they don't recognize that God's promises are not always fulfilled here and now, except, and they demand that they all happen now. Many of God's promises will come true in the life to come. We know this is true because Jesus did come to remove the curse of sin. He did come to establish his kingdom, but he also taught us to pray Thy kingdom come. It's something in the future. Thus we should not expect all the benefits of health and wealth now. So there's this tension in scripture. On the one hand, we should expect reward. And on the other hand, we know that the expectation of that is not always in this life. Hebrews 11:6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
God rewards people who come to him. And the rest of that chapter, Hebrews 11, goes on to tell the rewards that God gave the faithful of a city, of lasting treasures, of receiving their dead back by resurrection. And those aren't all just spiritual words, rewards. Yet those same verses show that many of those rewards are in the life to come. So there's this tension in Scripture that Jesus came to restore all things and one day all things will be made right. But it doesn't always happen now. And so we live in this tension of Jesus returning but not having come back, or Jesus coming but not having coming back again. And so this causes a challenge for many people. It's the challenge of our story before us this morning. This woman saying, my husband is dead and he feared the Lord. What should I do? And for many people, this is a clear sign of the falsehood of Christianity. Well, look, if Christianity was true, why do the righteous suffer sometimes and the wicked prosper? And what they don't realize is the scriptures actually bring this problem to us over and over again. They show us this is a problem, that things are not right. And it should make us look forward to when Jesus returns and makes all things right. The scriptures reveal that God does allow his children to suffer. And yet he also hears our prayers and cares for those who look to him. In this story, Elisha responds to that widow by asking her, well, what do you have? And then he goes and says, go get empty vessels of that you can borrow from your neighbors. Because she's told him, look, I only have one jar of oil. Now, I don't know what many of your cabinets look like, but I imagine it would be quite a startling look if you opened and there was no canned goods, no flour, no box of pre-made food. All you saw was one jar of oil. That's it. Nothing else. And the payment for the loans are due. And yet here, with just this, God will provide. Now you may have noticed earlier we had for, read for us 1 Kings 17. Elijah there interacted with the widow of Zarephath. And there's a lot of overlap between these stories. Now skeptics of the Bible will go, look, this is just the same story. They just kind of missed some details. Yet there's really two big problems with that. One, you basically have to assume the writer or editor is just an idiot, that they can't remember that they just told a story a couple chapters ago, and oh, I didn't recognize that I just retold the same story. As well, there's always clear literary and theological reasons for why they write both, besides the fact that they both actually happened. In this case, remember what happened. God promised Elijah that you will give your power to Elisha if Elisha sees you taken up to heaven. Well, how do we know that happens? Well, the same things that Elijah can do, we now see Elisha doing. There's a clear reason for these similar stories. So this widow, she obeys. She goes and asks her neighbors for empty vessels. They close the doors and they start to pour. And you can imagine their shock when they get to the end of the first one and they didn't even think that one would be full. And they go, I need another vessel. It's about to overflow. And they quickly slide another one under. And then they go, well, well, this one's getting full. Get another one. And they keep going until they have vessels all over the house, trying not to trip on them as they get another vessel. So she goes back to Elisha and tells him, and he goes, go sell. That'll be enough to pay off all your debts and to live. 
And so God provides because God cares. And yet I often read these stories and I think for myself and wonder for others, do we go, well, isn't that great how God used to act? Man, it's amazing in the Bible how God used to care for people as though God is not active in such a way today. And yet Jesus calls us today to pray for our daily bread. And he tells us that he cares for us. Now, some may say, well, couldn't have God have just kept the husband from dying in the first place? Couldn't he have changed the creditor's heart so they wouldn't have to pay off the debt? Yes, he could have. And God could remove all the effects of sin right now. In fact, he's taken the steps to do that by having Jesus come and die and rise again. And yet we are not yet in Jesus returning. And so we have not seen the full effect of Jesus' death and resurrection. So while there will be some suffering, God chooses in his wisdom sometimes to alleviate it and sometimes to give us the grace to endure it. God doesn't promise here that he will always remove it, though he does always promise to be with us in the midst of it. And this story is highlighting that God is not a respecter of persons based on externals. He doesn't care whether you're rich or poor, black, brown, white, or something in between, powerful or powerless, well-known or unknown. God cares if you trust him. You may remember last chapter, 2 Kings 3, the king of Israel came, he came to Elisha, and what did Elisha say? What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Basically, if you're going to go pursue other things, let them care for you. You're powerful, you're a king, that doesn't matter. Oh, here comes a poor widow, she's trusting me, yes, I'll care for you. God hears and responds when we cry out to him. But it's not as though God just cares for the poor because we next read of God's care for the rich in verses 8 through 17. The story transitions and we read of Elisha traveling through a town called Shunem, about 15 to 20 miles from Mount Carmel. And there is a wealthy woman who, when Elisha comes to town, basically says, come eat at my house. And she's so generous that Elisha knows every time I come, she's going to provide. And so this is his local grub hub in Shunem. Now, unlike the prior widow who had unpayable debts and had lo- couldn't even pay and feed her sons, this woman seems to have enough money to feed other people. She has resources galore. She has more than she needs. In fact, she has so much that she says to her husband, Hey, look, you know, Elisha comes through a lot. Why don't we build an extra room on the house? We'll furnish it. We'll give him everything he needs. And when he comes into town, he'll have a place to stay. And so they do this at their own expense. They prepare a room for him. And then Elisha is wanting to know, well, how can we bless this woman who's been all this trouble to us? So they call her to them and they ask. And she says, look, basically I'm content with what I have. Now it's one of those verses as you're reading along, you may not think much about, but let's pause and think about it. The prophet of the Lord basically just asked her, what do you want? Any wish, and you can have it. And she says, no, I'm content with what I have. You know, God gives us many gifts, but one that we should pray for is contentment. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so may we pray for that same contentment that when asked, what do you want? I have what I need. Well, there's some communication here. The woman seems to leave. And then Gehazi informs Elisha, well, she doesn't have a son. Maybe not any children at all. We're not told. And her husband is old. Even today, when couples desire children and can't have them, it's emotionally and spiritually trying. Yet in ancient Israel, childlessness was even more of a burden to bear. Thus we read of people in the Bible, women in the Bible, like Sarah, or Rachel, or Hannah, or the mother of um, Samson, before she was his mother, and Elizabeth, who were childless and felt cursed, who felt ashamed, who felt like an outcast because they were barren. So Elisha calls her back and says, this time next year you'll have a son. And yet she responds in both shock and kind of fear. Don't promise me this if you're not going to give it. This is too much hope if it's going to be taken away. Don't lie to me. Don't joke about this. This is too serious, too much. And yet it's true. A year later, she has a son. And this selfless, serving Shunammite woman really models for us Philippians 2.4 that says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You know, the most natural thing in the world to do is to look after your own interest. No one wakes up saying, oh, I wonder how I can serve everyone else today. We wake up going, I wonder what I want next, what I can have next. You know, it really reveals the character of God in us when we are concerned about others' interests. You know, Elisha didn't ask her for a meal to eat, but she just provided a meal every time he came to town. Then she had the foresight and the care to go, I bet he could use a place to stay. And she did this because her gaze was focused not just on me, 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 but them, them, them. She looked around on what do others need and how can I provide it for them. So may God give us those same eyes to get them off of ourselves and on to others and going, what are needs and desires around me and how can I fulfill them? How can I even sacrifice my own needs to serve them? You know, this can start small by not demanding your own way or complaining when you don't get your way about what you're going to do or what you're going to watch or what you're going to eat. What do the others want to watch and eat? It can grow to considering giving up time to serve others. And wouldn't our workplaces, our neighborhoods and homes be transformed if we all considered others' interests? as more important than our own. And we could make application after application about this, but let me speak to those who from time to time will say, I'm so bored. (laughs) You know, if you're bored, I bet you there's people in your house who would love for you to use your boredom to serve them. To say, hey, could I do the laundry? Hey, I know it's not my chore this week, but it really looks like this needs to happen. Could I do it? And I bet they would say, 
Sure, I'd be glad to let you do that. You know, if you're bored, there are others who are not, who are working hard and they could use your help. Beyond that, let's think about the people not in our room. Frida McClung, the Wes and Judy Martin. They're often bored, but they have no way to do something. Give them a call. Write them a note. Go visit. If you say, Mom and Dad, could I go spend an afternoon playing cards with them? I'm sure they'd say yes, and they would love it. You don't have to be bored. There are so many ways in this world you can serve, and we could go on and on, but all of this really is based on one thing. It's being given the grace of God to look at others and go, how can I serve rather than I be served? And as well to know that God sees and notices when you live like that. And this story is also a reminder that God cares even for the, what you might call, insignificant or mundane. You might go, well, well that's wrong. This woman's wealthy. She matters. Yeah. Did you notice we never learned her name? Sure, she was wealthy, but there's been literally millions of wealthy people that we don't know their names and in the grand scheme of things are quite insignificant. As well, Dale Davis noted that in the other stories of barren women in the Bible, their children always go on to be something great. Sarah was barren and then she had Isaac, one of the patriarchs of the faith. Rachel was barren, but then she had Joseph, who saved Israel and that region from famine and death. Hannah was childless, and then she gave birth to Samuel, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. Elizabeth the barren gave birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner, the Elijah figure before Jesus. The Shunammite woman had a son, and he, he lived, died, and that's all we know. We never learn his name. We never know anything about him. And the point is that God cares even for the mundane. God's not just concerned about this grand sweeping arc of redemptive history. He's also concerned about the person that no one ever knows about. The things that no one else will ever write about. God cares for the unnoteworthy, at least unnoteworthy in our eyes. Because no one and nothing is unnoteworthy to him. As 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Not just for the wealthy, not just for the poor, but for all those who trust Him. And that's our third and last point, that God's care is for believers. And the story progresses. How many years? We don't know, but it progresses so that now that son is able to go in and out of the fields. And one day he goes out, and while he's out there, his head starts to hurt. Why? We don't know, but his father sends him home, and when the servant takes him home, the servant lays this child in his mother's lap, and then the child died. If then the woman acts in a way we wouldn't expect, she doesn't begin to cry, she doesn't call her neighbors, she doesn't even plan a funeral, she takes the child upstairs in the room she provided and lay to him on Elisha's bed. She then asks for a servant who will rush her to Elisha. Again, we said this was about 15 to 20 miles away, so on a fastly moving donkey, maybe a two or three hour trip. And so as she approaches, Elisha sees her in a distance and he sends Gehazi, Gehazi, go see what's going on with the Shunammite. And when he asks, she says, all is well. Now, some people get all caught up in a twist. Well, wait, is she lying? She told her husband all is well and she told Gehazi all is well. And yet I think that misses the point. I think what's going on is that she's living with the eyes of faith. 
Thus, while everything appears disastrous, she knows that God will work through Elisha. Hebrews 11.35, the hall of faith that we sometimes call it, says that by faith, women receive back their dead by resurrection. I think that's talking about this story. Upon seeing Elisha, though, this woman, the Shunammite woman, falls down at his feet and seizes them. Now you might think, well, that's kind of a contradiction. We're, you were just saying she's a woman of faith, and now she's falling down in anxiety, pleading for her son. And yet the issue is not whether she has faith. The issues are misunderstanding of faith. We tend to think that faith means we're calm, almost unemotional. I have faith. I got peace. Well, yes, that's true. But Jesus, as you know, perfectly trusted his father. He had perfect faith. And yet it says in Mark 14, 33, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Both Jesus and this woman expressed their faith in the very midst of their emotional and spiritual trouble by the very fact that they keep clinging to God and crying out to him. Faith does not mean you're calm and tranquil. Faith means that even in your tears, even in your despair, you're clinging on to the feet, either of Elisha or the Lord. Now imagine someone clinging to someone's feet. We'd feel that's a little bit uh, uncouth. And even in their day, that was a stunning break of decorum. And so Gehazi comes up and tries to shoo her away. Don't be doing this. And Elisha realizes she's in bitter distress and that the Lord has hid what has happened from him. And then she challenges Elisha. Did I ask for a son? Did I not say, don't deceive me? And this is exactly what we read earlier in verses 15 to 16. What had happened in the flow of the story years before. She said, look, don't give me this hope. Don't give me this joy only to rob me of it. Even though she was childless, she would have rather have stayed that way than to know the joy of having a child and then, like is happening now, lose that joy and hope. Now, we know the whole story. But for Elisha, this is the first clue that something is wrong with her son. And even now, he doesn't know the child is dead. So he sends his servant Gehazi running back with his staff in his hand. And when Gehazi arrives... He lays the staff on the child's head and then he realizes that the child is dead. But though he ran off as Elisha commanded, the Shunammite woman says, I will not leave you, Elisha. As the Lord lives, I will not leave unless you come with me. So Elisha goes. So Gehazi has run and is coming back and Elisha is running. Now there's no algebra problem if Elisha is running at five miles per hour and Gehazi runs and comes back. Nope. That's intriguing. Us math people would love to work that one out. But nonetheless, somewhere along the way, they meet. Gehazi reports what happens, and Elisha goes the rest of the way. But it's interesting. What is it that Elisha does? He goes in, he shuts the door, and then he prays. You know, it's really important to recognize this, because in the Old Testament, Elisha does some miraculous feats. Yet he and we must always remember that any of that power comes from God. Elisha is not omniscient. He didn't know what had happened to the son. Elisha is not omnipotent. He must pray himself. 
and ask God to act. Elisha, though mightily used by God, is not God. And likewise, we must remember that many people might be a blessing to us, might be a parent, a coach, a spouse, a friend, a counselor, and they are such a blessing, but they, we must remember, they are not God. They may be a representation of many of the wonderful things about God's character. They may show us His love, His counsel, His comfort, His presence. Yet it is very dangerous if you ever put all your faith or hope in anyone besides the Lord. Every human is a sinner and will eventually sin in some way. Every human is fallible and they will eventually let you down. Every human is mortal and they eventually will die. Now the point is not to avoid humans, but to realize that we should give thanks to God for the way they represent God to us. Yet we need to realize they are mere shadows of the greater reality. Thus to have loved and lost, while quite painful, has been given the great privilege to have loved someone who reflected God to you. Losing them should bring deep grief, but also a deep longing to see not only them again, but also to see face to face the one that they reflected, God himself. So the story then wraps up with some unexplained actions. Elisha lays on the child, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, and when he does this, the child's flesh becomes warm. Why did he do this? I have no idea. But it's pretty similar to what Elijah did in 1 Kings 17, and I think they're trying to show this connection that Elijah passed the mantle on to Elisha. Second, Elisha went back and forth, stretched himself out, and then the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Why? I don't know. Why seven, not three or 17? I don't know. But then the woman comes, she bows, and she takes her son, and the story wraps up. Now, but at the beginning of the service, if you were here, you may remember, I read from Luke chapter 7. If you're really sharp on your toes, you'll remember that we read about the town of Nain. Because Jesus, he was approaching this town of Nain, and as he was entering into it, a funeral procession was coming out of it. Interestingly, Nain sits on the same massive hill as Shunem, with Shunem being on the south side of the hill, and Nain being on the northern side of the hill, about two miles apart. So Nain would have known all about Elisha's miraculous working through the woman at Shunem. And here Jesus comes to this neighboring town and sees this funeral coming out, and he sees the mother who is grieving her only son who has died, and he says in his compassion, Do not weep. It seems that Jesus clearly forgot the top ten things not to say to grieving people. You know, how insensitive can you be? Her only son died and he says, hey, don't cry. Now, if Jesus was just a good teacher or a great philosopher, that would be just about the most insensitive thing he could have said. And yet Jesus is more than a good teacher. He's more than a great philosopher. And he shows that because then he commands, young man, I say to you, unlike Elisha, who had to pray, Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. Then the child set up. 
You may know that the author of Luke, Luke's gospel, was a medical doctor himself. He knew the difference between a corpse and a coma. Luke even emphasized this by the way he wrote the story, because he didn't write, and the young man arose, but he wrote, the dead man arose. And then Jesus presented the young man to his mother, and she spoke. There was full restoration, not just from death to now you're sick again and you've got to recover, but death to complete healing. And then from Nain in Luke 7, we saw mixed reactions. One group of the crowd said, a great prophet has come and visited his people. As neighbors to Shunem, they knew of the Old Testament prophet Elisha. They think an Elisha-like figure has returned. And yet, sadly, many people are like that. They think Jesus is merely a prophet. They hold Jesus in reverence. They love his teachings, but they also love Confucius and Buddha and all these other great spiritual teachers who have insights into life. And yet Jesus' actions boldly declare that he's more than just a prophet. And he's far greater than any other spiritual teacher that has ever lived. And it's not just that his teachings are more insightful, his miracles more miraculous, so they are. It's that he's of a completely different order of beings. He said to the young man, I say to you, arise. The power of the resurrection is there because Jesus didn't just conquer death, but he did so because he's the Son of God. He's God himself who conquered death and brought life. Elijah and Elisha prayed and did these weird acts that we don't even understand. Jesus has the power of death and speaks and brings life. And yet there was a second group in Nain, and they said God has visited his people. You see, Jesus is more than a prophet. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And yet this still raises the question, well, if God can bring people back to life, then why not my child? Then why not my spouse? Why not my friend? Why are they still dead? God, why did you take them from me? Well, let's consider again our stories. You know, there's two stories here. In the first story, God didn't bring the husband back to life, but he did provide the resources for them to live without the husband. In the second story, God had already provided the resources, and yet he chooses to bring the child back to life. Why did God bring only resources in the first story, but resources and new life in the second? Well, it's not as some wrongly state that one group had enough faith and the other didn't. Both women had deep faith in God. Ultimately, we don't know why God worked differently, but it's not due to his lack of care. You know, Jesus knows the grief, the pain of death, he on earth wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He knows on earth death is unnatural. It's final on earth. And yet God's care is not just warm sympathy. It's a care that came and entered into life so that his son might die to conquer death. You know, Jesus died and rose again conquering sin and death so that its reign will end. And when he returns, death, poverty, and sickness will be no more. You're one of the most comforting set of verses for me is found at the end of Romans 8. There Paul writes, 
What then shall we say to these things? Or what shall we say to widows, to those in poverty, those with children dying early? Paul continues, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, Paul's saying, look, think about it. If God would give his son to die for you, to save you eternally, don't you think he's going to care about you every day? He's not going to drop the ball on the rest of your life. Thus the chapter ends, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, nothing can separate us from the most important love, that of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that came to live and die because He cares. Life does bring challenges now. But Jesus has gone to go and prepare a place for us so that he might come again and restore us to him forever. Thus, we do grieve at loss and death, but we don't do so without hope. We have hope knowing that God cares for all who will trust in his risen son. Let's go to him in prayer. O oh Lord, like the widow in the first story. And like the woman in Shunem in the second, we often come to you and say, why, Lord? We're trying to serve you. We're trying to honor you. And yet we have this pain. We have this sorrow. We have this tragedy. And so, Lord, would you help us, even through these Old Testament stories, see your tender care and love? Would you give us eyes of faith, even in the midst of our suffering, to know that you are there with us? And may we... Long for that day when you will return and bring us through your Son to yourself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.